podcast starts. Hello everyone, welcome back to the show and it's me, TD Velasquez, as ever though, you can call me Dan, with a quick intro on my own to give context to this re-edited re-upload of some of the material Howard and I recorded in 2017 for the Lee Cushing podcast, ahead of the brand new episode we're releasing this week. In the first recording we talk in depth about another Hammer gothic horror film starring Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, the 1959 adaptation of the Sherlock Holmes adventure The Hound of the Baskervilles. I've edited it together with another chat that Howard and I recorded a little later, in which we discuss several other Sherlockian film and TV productions with which either Cushing or Lee were involved, from 1962's Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace to 1991's Sherlock Holmes The Golden Years. However, I must apologise for the sound quality on this segment, as circumstances forced us to experimentally record it on a mobile phone while sitting in a quiet cafe in Manchester, which grew significantly less quiet as our chat progressed. I hope that you still find the overall episode to be good value though, and you'll find me back here for the next episode, along with Howard, Stella and our guest Tim Shaw, to talk about Horror Express. London, England. Sometime near the end of the reign of Queen Victoria, vaguely. It's time for your appointment, Mr... Ah, uh, Dr. Freud, please call me Sherlock. Sherlock? Yes, I'm rarely so informal, but with you, Dr. Freud, I feel we are kindred spirits, although we have never met before. Well, this is very flattering. Both intellectuals, unafraid to battle against the prevailing intellectual tide of their times... I've read so much about your fascinating investigations into the human mind, though I must confess, you are not quite as I expected you. Oh, how so? I was expecting a a smallish man, bearded, about my age, with a comedy Austrian accent. You have a stern British accent, although you're somewhat foreign in appearance, and you're both noticeably younger than me, and very tall. Yes, well, you see, for the purposes of this sketch, it's as if I am played by Christopher Lee. Ah, of course. I can sort of do the accent, if you'd like. That is within my ability. Pray do. Sit down, Sherlock, and please explain to me what is on your mind. I have a recurring nightmare. I am running through moorland at night in a, in a swirling fog. There is an animal pursuing me. I cannot see it, but I hear its growls and snarls. I am attempting to outrun it, but I am aware that I am crossing through marshland and I have a terror of making a misstep and and slipping into the mire. Then I freeze as I hear a a dreadful sound, the shriek of a man ahead of me who has made that very mistake, the scream smothered as he slips beneath the mud. And then I see the creature. Ahead of me it has leapt from the mist and I am trapped in its path. It is a vicious-looking dog of tremendous size. One might call it a hound. A vivid and terrifying nightmare, no doubt. But why does why does it trouble you so? It is a dream I've had before, some years ago. It used to play me regularly, until I was engaged to solve a peculiar mystery down in Dartmoor, a mystery involving just such a terrifying beast, and which would draw me into those very marshes. After this adventure, the nightmare lost its grip. It ceased until now? It did. And is the dream you're having now exactly the same as the one you used to have? Almost precisely the same, but for some small surface details and production values. And what varies your particularly is... Well, oh, sod it. 
<clears throat> and what worries you particularly is that, when you had the dream before, the experience of solving a mystery which featured many of the dream's elements seemed to purge the nightmare from your mind, but this time... This time, surely no such mystery is afoot. And so how are you to purge the dream? Precisely. I think, though, Sherlock, that you underestimate both the strangeness of life and the power of the mind. There is evidence for the existence of precognition, a mental faculty which we may all possess, especially those gifted with a mind such as yours. You are suggesting that my earlier dreams were mere foreshadowments of the mystery I was to solve. Premonitions, which proved truthful. Perhaps you would do well to heed them again. Because they warn me that the experience is about to recur? Indeed. But surely a person could never be called upon to solve the same mystery twice. It is a remarkable world, Sherlock, and you are a remarkable man. If anyone could succeed in such a feat, I feel it would be you. Well, I find that oddly comforting. I thank you for your time, Dr. Freud. I thank you for your faith, Sherlock. Although I too am a little surprised to find you consulting me. I also have read of your work, and I did not think you were the kind of person who would seek my services. Mm. I confess I am feeling out of sorts at present. Perhaps it is the 7% solution. Ah, there I cannot help you. Indeed. Well, I must go to my next appointment. I am due at the annual general meeting of the Society for People who... People who periodically think they are Sherlock Holmes. Quite correct. How did you know? I'm going there too. Of course you are. Okay, so we'll be talking about the Hound of the Baskervilles, and as the um, listener might recognise, we just had a little bit of music from the wonderful James Bernard there. I think uh, that's his theme tune from this film, The Hound of the Baskervilles, and I think it's one of the, one of the few which isn't based on the syllables of the title. Oh uh, yes, probably yes. It's like how I think if you leave the thes out. So it's kind of like Hound of Baskerville, <laughs> maybe. But um, uh, it could be It is Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> it is Sherlock Holmes. It could be. I don't know. That's, um, I think he probably. Yeah, he probably did write it like that, and he was desperately hoping that they'd make sequels to it, so he could just reuse that over and over. But sadly, he didn't. Something that I'm starting to realise as I'm getting older is these films are not that old. Fifty years ago is not actually that long. When I was first becoming a horror fan and I was 12, 13, 14, they seemed ancient, yes. um, you know, and, and fascinating for that reason. But now I'm 35, you know, I'm not that much younger than these films in some ways. And soon, and you know, Aliens is 30 years old this year, you know, but these but wonderful movies don't age in the same way. No, of course not. And, you know, we should keep refreshing them and, and, and finding reasons to rediscover and love these these movies um and you know that's what this podcast is all about so let's get going the hound of the baskervilles hound of the baskerville 1959's the hound of the baskervilles which was i believe the third of the gothic horror films that hammer made to feature both peter cushing and christopher lee yes um so it was between so they made the mummy before this no this was after dracula but before the mummy right um, and it was made because um, there was a young American producer called Elliot Hyman whose father ran a sales organisation that did some dealing with Hammer and he was just kind of inspired by 
uh, meeting them to, to get into the film production business. And he had no experience, but he had a bit of money and he had Hootspah. And he basically bought the rights to The Hound of the Baskervilles. I mean, um, I think Sherlock Holmes is probably public domain now. Uh, because Conan Doyle, who wrote the stories, um, died in the 30s, the early 30s, I think. But obviously, you know, they were not public. In those days, um, copyright meant that 50 years after an, uh, an author's death, they still held the rights to their work. So it was less than 50 years since Conan Doyle had died. So you still had to pay money to the, the Doyle estate if you wanted to dramatise Sherlock Holmes. So Hyman bought the rights to just The Hound of the Baskervilles, not the whole canon of books. And he took it to Hammer. And Hammer went, great idea, it's sort of horror. Um, and in fact, apparently in the American prints of this film, um, he is uh, Elliot Hyman is credited as the co-producer, but he's not on the British version. On the British version, it's just Anthony Hines, who was you know, the production head of Hammer at the time. And I want to correct myself on this because I think in a couple of podcasts ago, when we were talking about the, the inception of Hammer and stuff, I talked about Anthony Hines's the fact that he wrote scripts under the name John Elder. Mm. But also his I said his real name was Anthony Hammer. And there's a lot of pseudonyms going on. Not true. Uh his real name is Anthony Hines, but he was the son of William Hines whose stage name, he was a performer, like a musical performer, was Will Hammer. And that's where we get the name Hammer Film Productions. But it is true that Anthony Hines wrote under a pseudonym, and so did Michael Carreras, who was his cousin, I think. Now I'm getting... It was a family business, guys, and it was complicated. Um, but MC Hammer's name really is MC Hammer. That That is a fact. That's absolutely... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. that's cast iron. Yeah, there is a lot of uh, there are a lot of pseudonyms in Hammer because people were doing several different jobs sort of at the same time, and so producers were writing scripts or whatever, and all people had to step in and take over things. And I think there's a certain um, feeling in a family business that you don't want it to necessarily seem like a family business, which is why it was called Hammer Films, not Heinz Films, um, and and you know and and they're encouraging. Uh, people to go by the, the the names of Carreras and all the different pseudonyms to to prevent the impression that it's just like a small family firm, which basically was. Yeah. Um, I, I reckon. Um, That's what people say. People who, people who worked on those films said there was a kind of family atmosphere. That's why they enjoyed working on them. That's why people kept coming back yeah. and kept doing them because it was a nice atmosphere on the set and everything. Yeah, and this film, I mean, we talked about The Curse of Frankenstein um, a couple of months ago. And this film is basically made by the same crew in the same building. You know, um, the director of photography is Jack Asher, uh, the production designer Bernard Robinson, the music, James Bernard, all those people are, are in place who, who were in, on the previous movie, the editor, James Needs. Um, but it's not written by Jimmy Sangster, who had um, written the scripts for Ghost of Frankenstein and Dracula. It's written by a man called Peter Bryan, who's speaking of... Um, People doing multiple jobs. He'd been a Hammer camera operator. Yeah. That's how they knew him. But um, he was already a playwright, I think. They knew that his, he, he'd like written um, plays for amateur theatre or something. So they knew that he had that kind of flair. So that's why Anthony Hines decided to give him the job of writing this. It may have also been that Jimmy Sangster was just too busy. Jimmy Sangster would probably have been writing The Mummy at this point. And, and the production started to uh, overlap a bit. Because not only have... 
the the three movies starring Cushing and Lee, uh, Curse of Frankenstein, Dracula, the um, Hand of the Baskervilles, those are one kind of train. But as at the same time as making those movies, Hammer were making other films. Um, and we'd already had a, a Frankenstein sequel, The Revenge of Frankenstein, starring Cushing. Um, yeah, and a couple of other things. And, and, and they're non-horror productions. They were already making movies based on sitcoms and things. I only asked and stuff like yes. that. Um, Bernard Breslau. Yes, and uh, you know, and Vehicle. as we talked about last in last podcast, yeah, the the Quatermass sequel and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, you know, so um, so therefore you you get the the next film in the sequence in the Cushing Lee sequence, the Mummy, like that doesn't have James Bernard on the score. I, I think just because they were starting to make too many films and people were getting too busy, and and they they had to they had to get more people in to do them. But yeah, so we have the Hand of the Baskervilles kind of. Another reason that Hammer kind of snapped up the the idea of of doing a new version of Hound of the Baskervilles, there'd never been a colour Sherlock Holmes film, um, and this was the one Sherlock Holmes story that is almost a horror story. They thought they could fit it into their gothic horror mode, um, and so they 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 set about souping up the story a little bit to make it more to to make it fit better, and that's got. Um, uh, mixed results i think what do you think of this film well like? mixed yes i've got mixed feeling like you say um it's hand of the basketballs is like a horror story but it's not a horror story it is a who it is a detective story it is a who done it story there is a rational explanation see yeah. my like you say the hammer style had been well established by then there've been three really three four really successful films dracula curse of frankenstein revenge of frankenstein and the hammer style which is very sort of like very sort of lurid and melodramatic and theatrical and pacey and a bit gruesome and everything. You know, it works brilliantly for Dracula and it works brilliantly for Frankenstein and The Mummy and, and the other gothic horror films. I don't think necessarily it works all that well for The Hound of the Baskervilles, which is a different kind of story. I just think there's a, um, a slight tension between trying to make a traditional hammer gothic horror film and trying to make an adaption of The Hound of the Baskervilles. I th- the two things don't quite fit together, don't quite go together because and so they have to they have to make it like a horror film so they have all these kind of like little they change things like for instance the villain has a webbed hand which he certainly does not have in the novel um and there's a subplot involving a tarantula which attacks various people which is not in the novel and there's i think there's the the place in where it's set it used to be they say it was somewhere where they used to commit human sacrifice and there's a blood covered dagger which features prominently in the story yeah no i think things are changed to make it seem more like a hammer horror film uh which is fine and it's entertaining the film certainly is entertaining i i thoroughly enjoyed it and like say all the production values are high they're all there bernard robinson and james bernard everybody's you know at their peak making this film i just don't think the hammer style is entirely appropriate for a story like the hound of the baskervilles well i think you're right and what i would say that you've picked up on there and you know i i i enjoy this film a great deal i think it's nearly a masterpiece really but i'm also as well as a hammer fan and a horror fan i'm a sherlock holmes fan and i think it's not really a sherlock holmes film and i think what you've picked on there is the fact that hammer was developing an identity as a maker of gothic horror films not just horror films gothic horror films and Hound of the Baskervilles is not a gothic horror story. No. It's a detective story, yes. I do think you could say it's like a horror story. Or it's like um, a supernatural ghost story with a rational explanation in the end. But th- what happens on the last page doesn't really matter. 
um, you know, it's how it makes you feel during the story. Uh, and I do think it is frightening, it is eerie. Um, but it's still not a gothic horror story. It's um, it's a, a kind of spooky, um, gentle, thoughtful, melancholic story. You know, the moors and things like that. Um, uh, it, you know, in the book, the, you have this massive presence of the moor and like the the um, uh, the mire which horses slip into and eerie sounds coming across the moor and things. But um, not really haunted spooky castles. And even Baskerville Hall isn't the scary place in the story. Baskerville Hall is kind of the safe bit. You go out of it into the moor, and, yes. and that, you know. Um, whereas I think in the film, in this film, Baskerville Hall is clearly based on the template and, the, and some of the same set pieces as Dracula, uh, Dracula's Castle, and a certain amount of Frankenstein's Castle as well, you know. So I have a slightly conflicted opinion on it, but there's loads to say about how great it is. I think. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, I think it's a very good film. It's just I think one of my problems with it. Um, is I mean I'm not a huge I'm not a huge Sherlock Holmes fan. Mm. Columbo is my favourite detective, always will be. But I, I, do, I do enjoy I, I think we should make it a point that Columbo gets mentioned <laughs> Columbo in every will episode. Be mentioned I, love Columbo. I I may find a sound effect that I can insert <laughs> whenever you make a Columbo um, reference. The rustling of a raincoat will be good. Um I also yeah. So I'm not a huge I'm I'm not that bothered. Because I'm not a huge Sherlock Holmes fan. I'm not all that bothered if they change things, mm. you know. Oh, yeah. I, I don't think it should be sacrosanct. My point is that the things they change just slightly alter the emphasis oh, yeah. of the story to a, a, a way that, for me, doesn't quite... It doesn't quite work. Quite, quite work. Well, I, uh, I, I think... It, it worked it for take... Dracula. It worked for The Curse of Frankenstein. It works for The Mummy. It works for The Curse of the Werewolf. That style, brilliant. All those films are, are, mm. are, are classics, as far as I'm concerned. They're, they're great. It doesn't quite work for this. I am a Sherlock Holmes fan, but I'm also... And, I'm also a Hound of the Baskervilles fan. It's one of my favourite stories. I've read it. Uh, I've read a, a sort of um, revisions of it. Um, I've seen many versions of it. I'll watch it to death. And I don't mind that people changing details because if they didn't, every time I watched it, it would be the same. And the Hammer one has a kind of slightly different ending, which I appreciate. Um, and I, I, I love it for what they did do. And and every ver- version is different in different ways, and and, and I'm happy for that. Um, I I just think my point is that it's still not a gothic horror story. You can no. uh, Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Mummy, which was obviously just is kind of a modern story based on a the Universal film. They already were gothic horror stories, and and done in the Hammer style, they were just that, but more so. Whereas, um, Hound. Uh, is kind of pushed towards the area of gothic, but what? But I did think this when I watched it again. Uh, when you look at the story of the Hound of the Baskervilles, the novel, as I say, I don't think it's a gothic horror story. But the backstory, the story about Sir Hugo Baskerville, is it mm. is a gothic horror story. Know then the legend of the Hound of the Baskervilles. Know then that the Great Hall of Baskervilles was once held by Sir Hugo of that name. A wild, profane, and godless man. An evil man in truth. For there was with him a certain ugly and cruel humour that made his name a byword in the county. This man who's so um, powerful and ruthless and evil that people kind of say that he is satanic. 
and he will basically do anything to get what he wants and he wants um he wants to have his sexual way with anybody he 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 chooses and he creates kind of orgy like scenarios of debauchery um and by doing all this he he he's punished for doing all this almost by this spectral figure of the hound which kills him and it becomes the legend um and every version of the hound of the baskervilles has to include this story it's kind of crucial um and most of them film it you get a proper flashback um the one that i could think of that doesn't is the um, jeremy brett tv version where the budget was cut no. so so you don't see it it's all delivered um by jeremy brett reading from the parchment it's a uh, great opening but well it's a brilliant opening. and this version because it's done in the hammer style and that bit requires that style this film has the best version of that story you'll ever see it's just brilliant and the guy who plays um hugo baskerville david oxley is incredible i think he really has a, a, an amazing demonic visage. She's got away. What does she think I am that she does this to me? Damn her, damn her! I have her now. You there, let loose the pack! And you, my hunter at the door! He kidnaps the daughter of a local farmer or something, and he wants to have his way with her. He had a bunch of bully boys who he would um, he would lord it over, and they lock her upstairs while they're while they're having all kinds of debauchery downstairs. But then when he goes upstairs to get her, he finds that she's escaped. She's made it out through the window, and he then, in a rage, he sets off across the moor to hunt her down um, with his dogs, as if she was a fox, you know. But when he finds her, she's already dead, and there's this hound creature which then kills him. Exactly how that happens is a bit different in the film and different in various versions of it. But I think in terms of the atmosphere and the visualisation of it and the characterisation of it, you're never going to get a better version of that story than what happens at the start of this Hammer film of The Hound of the Baskervilles. Are we agreed on that? Oh, yeah, no, I think it's a great opening, yes. Um, And that part, yeah, that part's brilliant. Um, I suppose one of my problems with it, like I say, I'm not... I do think it's a great film. I do think it's a really enjoyable film. I don't want to kind of sound like I'm being disparaging or anything. Yeah, I agree. Um, And they're all great in it. I think just one of my problems with it is that Sherlock Holmes himself is such a fascinating and distinctive character and so compelling um, and so kind of idiosyncratic and so kind of enigmatic and and, and a kind of ambiguous character. Um, But because... this film is so kind of like pacey and so fast paced and everything. You don't really get that. I think it's it's plot kind of um, takes over from character. There's a scene in the novel of Hound of the Baskervilles, which is in most of the other film versions, TV versions I've seen, where uh, Dr. Mortimer, who gets him involved in the story, had been to uh, Sherlock Holmes's apartment one day. He wasn't there, but he left his walking stick. Mm. And uh, later on, when Holmes and Watson come back, uh, Holmes gives Watson the stick and says, "Well, describe the person who would own this stick using deduction, using your powers of observation." And of course, Watson says, "Oh, well, it's it's an old man who lives in the town," and he gets it all wrong basically. Hmm. Uh, and he gives the stick back to Holmes and says, "Oh, very much, very good, very good, Watson, but you're completely wrong." And then Holmes describes the character of the person who owns the stick and gets it all right. You know, he's a young man, whatever. Uh, and I think that's just a, a, a wonderful scene. It, it's it, a brilliant it, character it, sketch. Yes, it sums it up. Just sums up describes the relationship between these two characters, why they're friends, why they're close, why they... And, you know, 
Holmes's brilliance and Watson's sort of lack of brilliance. And, uh, it's, it's a wonderful scene, wonderful little character moment between them. And that's not in the film. Yeah. And, it, it, and those kind of scenes are not in the film. The, 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 the Sherlock Holmes just becomes like, almost like a Van Helsing character. It's just sort of a lot of the idiosyncrasies are not there. I don't think. Yeah, well, I think I think the film plays down his kind of intellectual investigative methods and emphasises um, his fearlessness and his kind of attitude um, to other people and to what's going on. And you don't get the scene with the cane, but you do get the bit which Cushing inserted, which is a direct quote from a different home story. Um, the problem of Thorbridge, where he says, My professional charges are upon a fixed scale. I do not vary them, except when I remit them altogether. Uh, and things like that. You know, um, and and it's a lot A lot of it is more kind of how he treats people. I think we should just say, you know, we've somebody listening to this podcast who wasn't really familiar with this film at all might assume, but, you know, obviously knows that we're the Cushing Lee podcast, uh, might could easily have assumed that um, Lee plays Sherlock Holmes and Cushing plays Doctor Watson, or something like that. You know, we've not uh, we've not introduced that, so I think it's fair to say that um, uh, Hammer cast Peter Cushing as Sherlock Holmes. That 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 was like a no brainer. Yes. He just played Van Helsing for them, and he was the, he was their star. But there was also um, a developing kind of the a developing idea of Cushing and Lee as a pairing. It would be part of the package that Hammer sold. So Christopher Lee is in it. But he doesn't play Dr. Watson. Um, who does, Howard? Uh, Dr. Watson is played by a very fine actor and an important member of the Hammer repertory company called Andre Morel. Now, Andre Morel uh, had worked with Peter Cushing before. He was in the legendary um, BBC adaption of 1984 where Peter Cushing plays Winston Smith and Andre Morel plays O'Brien, the villain. It's amazing. Um, he also, uh, Andre Morel, um, is Quatermass in Quatermass in the Pit, the television version from the 1950s. And he was a very distinguished actor. He'd worked with the Bolting Brothers. He'd worked with David Lean. He'd been in The Bridge and the River Kwai and things mm. like this and Seven Days to Noon. He was, you know, a very respected actor. Uh, and Hammer, seeing how good he was, they cast him in several films, actually. Plague of the Zombies, I think, is, is perhaps his most famous part. Well, we've talked about that before. Yes. But he plays um, Dr. Watson in this brilliantly because he's a brilliant actor. He's married to John Greenwood, by the way, so lucky man. Oh, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, so yeah, there's a bit of an age difference, but you know, that's your yeah. business. Uh, and what's <laughs> kind of like, the thing about Hound of the Baskervilles, it's always to me slightly ironic that Hound of the Baskervilles has become the most famous and the most adapted Sherlock Holmes story because Holmes is absent from the story from quite a long period of time. No, and, the lead character is actually Watson, really. Yes, and you need a really good actor to play Watson. Now, fortunately, they have got a really good actor to play Watson in this, so he has to carry the story for about 20 minutes. Well, uh, sort of like Sherlock Holmes pretends, he says, he tells Watson to go to Baskerville Hall with Sir Henry and look after things, and I'll stay in London. Well, actually, Sherlock Holmes is living on the moors, watching everything that's going on, um, but he's out of the story for about 15, 20 minutes. So, and every, every adaption of Hand of the Baskerville has that problem, is that Sherlock Holmes disappears for quite a long period of time. Yeah, and what's really annoying is that whenever somebody has an idea about let's do a new Sherlock Holmes, they tend to start with the Hand of the Baskervilles, which means if the film doesn't get sequelised or the series doesn't take off, that actor who played Holmes in it, no matter how good they were, only has one episode 
which they're hardly in. Yes. And I'm thinking of Tom Baker specifically <laughs> here. But also, you know, and sometimes, thank God, it happens like that because otherwise we'd have loads of episodes of Sherlock Holmes starring Richard Roxburgh. But he well, made yes. The Hound of the Baskervilles in 2002, that. which is not very good. And he is dreadful in it. But luckily the film is kind of still semi-enjoyable because he's in so little of it. Well, it's interesting because, like, obviously, I mean, the first of the Basil Rathbone films was The Hound of the Baskervilles because it's such a famous story, so you start with that one. And that led on to a very successful series of films where Sherlock Holmes sort of somehow came up to date and was fighting Nazis and everything. Um, but again, you know, the problem with The Hound of the Baskervilles is he, he's, Basil Rathbone isn't in it for, for quite a long period of time. Now, because Basil Rathbone was so great and... For me, he is Sherlock Holmes. He is a definitive Sherlock Holmes. He is the one I would say was the best. Okay. Uh, it's you know not a very controversial choice saying Basil Rathbone is your favourite Sherlock Holmes, but I think he is. I think it's controversial on this podcast, Howard. <laughs> I don't think you're allowed to say it on this podcast. Well, no, I, well, I think he is. I think he is the best. Okay. Um, but it's, yeah, it's curious that it led on because, it, you know, it is, it's not a problem, but it's, it's, it's always, and you're adapting Sherlock Holmes, you've always got to um, get over the fact that he's not there for... Well, a period of time in the story. I mean, I think um, I think what you've got to remember is that it's a great story, and it just happens to be that he's not in it very much. It's still a great story. The only time it's a problem is if you're using that story to set up a series about that character. So, you know, sensible Sherlock Holmes series don't start with The Hound of the Baskervilles. They leave that till later. In fact... The best ever Sherlock Holmes series, I think, is the, the adaptation they did on Radio 4 with Clive Merrison as Sherlock Holmes and um, uh, Michael Williams, not the one from the Blair Witch Project, no, no. Um, as Dr. Watson. And um, they left the Hound of the Baskerville still absolutely last, but they kept the chronology of the stories exactly as it is in the as they were published. So... Before they'd actually aired The Hound of the Baskervilles, you'd have episodes where where Watson was going, that's almost like what happened in that affair with The Hound of the Baskervilles. <laughs> but you'd never heard that. And then they finally did it. And it's, um, and you know, you've just, um, you know, nailed your your flag to the mast of Basil Rathbone. And I'll say, I think Clive Merrison is the best Sherlock Holmes. And his version of The Hound of the Baskervilles is the best adaptation of the story that anyone's ever done. I just think, I've listened to it a lot. It's got an all-star cast. It's got Donald Sindon for heaven's sake, as Sir Charles Baskerville. Oh. And he narrates the opening sequence, of which is the flashback to Sir Hugo and, and the legend and everything. And that is the only version of that legend which is anywhere near as good as the one in this film, I think, because his voice is so rich and foreboding. There's a great bit, and he has a bit of extra dialogue. Um, sorry, I shouldn't talk too much about that, but... Um, there's a, a bit of dialogue that they've added to it that's not in the book, which I kind of wish was in every version of The Hound of the Baskervilles, where Sir Charles talks about the moor, and he says, you don't know you don't know the moor like I do. It's a living thing. It has moods and desires and secrets. And, you know, I'm just like, whoa, that's great. And that that's the kind of atmosphere that I love, that the story has. Mm. It's kind of encapsulated in that line, and I, and I, and I love that in... Uh, and I want that to be any in in a version of Hand of the Baskervilles. It's not in this film though. No. That doesn't mean I don't think this is an enjoyable film. No. That doesn't mean I don't think this is an enjoyable film. But again, it's because they've pushed it more towards the gothic instead of the eerie. Yes. 
you know, the Gothic is. I'm. I, I don't pretend to be an ex. Although you know what, I did do a unit in university about Gothic fiction in, in relation to female literary figures. But I'm. I'm not an expert on, on on what constitutes the Gothic. There's a great documentary by Andrew Graham Dixon about how the origins of Gothic literature in Gothic architecture and how the mood for kind of slightly grotesque, slightly subversive, both fiction and um, kind of expressive architecture and things kind of all, all kind of grew together in the in the 18th century. But I think my instinct is that Gothic horror is a bit more physical. It's a bit more violent. Yes. It's a bit more passionate. And I think The Hound of the Baskervilles isn't that, but it has that underneath it because that's all contained in the Sir Hugo story. But the actual, the, the story of The Hound of the Baskervilles is more about unease, um, fear, a sense of is there something supernatural going on, you know, um, and it it, it, it was kind of, it's the kind of thing which the films of Val Luton are full of, you know. Well, I was, I was just thinking then, I wonder perhaps if Hammer had made it in black and white, if they had made it like Quatermass Experiment, uh, rather than being a full-blooded, mm. gaudy sort of like uh, technical horror film kind of thing. No, that would have, I don't know. I don't know whether that would have worked or not. I'm just, it was just a suggestion. I was just yeah, thinking yeah, about yeah. it then, sort of like um, doing it a different way. I mean, I don't think any Hand of the Baskervilles, any version of the Hand of the Baskervilles I've seen is definitive. I mean, it is quite a visual story and everything, but I don't know, you know, the Rathbone one is really good and he's great, but, and Nigel Bruce is great as well. Well, you know what, we should that. talk about that for a minute, that particular film, because in a way you could um, regard this as a remake of that, mm. because when this was made, that was the major cinematic Sherlock Holmes film and and here was Hammer doing it again in colour um, I keep gesturing uh, listeners you can't see it but Howard can I feel like I'm conducting something I don't know why it just helps um, yeah you know like Halliwell's film guide describes it as a spirited remake Spoiled by dogged hammer insistences on promises of death and sex. Well, in a way, that's kind of... I, I wouldn't go that far, certainly. I don't think it's spoiled. No. I just think it's... Uh, as a film, it's terrific. As a piece of entertainment, it works really well. It's just that as an adaption of The Hand of the Baskervilles, uh, things are changed which make the story less, slightly less effective. Yeah, I think I agree. Um, well, but I, mean, I, th- I think that's true of most of, of the versions I've seen. But so I think it's not just related to this one. Let's illustrate that by comparing it, though, to the Basil Rathbone one. The Basil Rathbone, uh, which I only watched recently. I, you know, I, I've seen all the other Rathbone films, but I'd save The Hound of the Baskerville still last because it is my favourite story, or one of you know one of my favourite stories, and I love the atmosphere of it. You know, it's a big Hollywood studio production. It was um, made in the late thirties. 39, 39 I think it was, yeah. um, and it's kind of got everything that a Hollywood movie could do at the time you know it was probably I just kept thinking of Titanic when I was watching <laughs> it you know in in terms of that scale of production you know you don't just meet um, uh, Sir Henry Baskerville you see him come off the ship there's yeah. a scene in the docks you know you've got huge scenes in the streets of London where they've built sets of, of London streets filled with extras you know um, they the whole moor um, you know the, the the bulk of the action is set on Dartmoor which is where Baskerville Hall is and which is supposed to be haunted by the hound um, they've built the entire moor in a studio and they've used kind of model shot model sets of the moor to 
that they, you know, they use trick shots to make the moor look bigger than it is and all this stuff. And they pump a million tons of dry ice all over everything, so it's really atmospheric. Absolutely everything is on the screen there. Um, and it pretty much all serves the story. So in a way, I think that's got a good claim to be the, the ultimate version of the story, except that they add a kind of weird extra ending onto it. Which what didn't strike me as very good in in any way in that film, um, but um, but you know so that's what that's what kind of the Hound of the Baskervilles was cinematically, and it's a rip roaring adventure, um, and yeah Sherlock Holmes is not really the main character of it. Neither is Doctor Watson. So the top billing in that movie is Richard Green, who was a young. I mean, he was still a star when the Hammer film was made. He was the TV Robin Hood. Robin Hood, Robin, Robin Hood, Hood, riding through the glen. Yes, which I remember from an advert more than from the original <laughs> series. Um, yes, I, we don't remember when it was first on. I mean, you know, even I'm not that old. No, well, I've never seen it. Although, you know, um, and but that was very popular at the time. It was the first ever filmed TV series of Robin Hood. Richard Green starred in it, but also produced it, I think. He was a b- yes. big, big noise. And then later he came, like a couple of years after this, or a year, he came to Hammer and said, will you make a film of my Robin Hood show? So they went, would we? <laughs> and um, Peter Cushing was cast as the Sheriff, Sheriff of yeah. Nottingham in it. Um, so he's Sir Henry and the star, the matinee idol lead of the 1939 Hound of the Baskervilles. And he's great. You know, he's 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 got again with the Titanic thing. He's got a kind of Leonardo DiCaprio thing about him. I think this young, um, marvelous, attractive heir apparent guy. Um, and then Hammer were like, "We're going to remake this," but they don't have the resources that Twentieth Century Fox had in the thirties. Um, so it's outgo things like any scenes on the streets of London. They've got no sets of London streets. They've got. They don't have those kind of extras. But those go. So the sequence in the in the book where, um, when uh, Sherlock Holmes has first kind of taken the assignment to try and protect Sir Henry Baskerville and thinks somebody's stalking him in London, in the in the book and most films, there's like a foot chase with hansom cabs where they they where somebody in a in a cab is kind of stalking Sir Henry and and uh, Doctor Watson and Sherlock Holmes chase him. That's not in the Hammer film. That that entire that that sequence is replaced by a moment in the hotel where Sir Henry has come to stay, where he finds that somebody's placed a tarantula in his baggage, and we have a, a tense sequence where a tarantula emerges, which is both cheaper and uh, more, you know, Hammer esque. Yes, more Hammer. And also, Sir Henry is played by Christopher Lee, which is a great bit of casting, I think, and it's the first kind of moment. Where you see, he's, it's the first film he's done for them where he's not the monster in some way. Um, and he really enjoys it. You know, he has, he's kind of, uh, in the book, Sir Henry is um, a distant heir to the Baskerville title, who is um, grown up in Canada. In the film, he's, he's supposed to have grown up in South Africa. So Christopher Lee can just about get away with retaining his usual mm. English accent. And... He's striking and attractive and, and has a certain intensity about him. And, and he's he's not a lead for the film, but he's an excellent sparring character, either with Watson or with Holmes. It's a great cast. It's, again, like a lot of the early Hammer films, a lot, a lot of all the Hammer films have got some great actors in it. There's the there's Sam Kidd. Oh, yeah. Who I think was in 
Sam Kidd and Sid James, between them, I think appeared in every British film of the 1950s. They were, they, I think right. Sam Kidd just sat in the canteen and people come up to him and say, Sam, can you just come and play a part in this film? We'll be a, be a policeman or something. Yeah, I'll come and do that for an hour. And then, because he was just, he's just in, he was just in everything back then. And, and, and he's great. He's, he plays a coachman, doesn't he? Yeah, John LeMessurier's in this film. John LeMessurier, yeah. I mean, that's, that's an interest because Dad's Army is kind of still current. You know, it's still shown on TV every week. Mainstream channel on BBC Two. You know, they can make a movie out of it, which they just have, which nobody mm. saw. But everybody knew what it was because yeah. because Dad's Army is still... So in a way, John LeMessurier is like still alive. And then you watch The Hound of the Baskervilles and there he is, looking exactly like Sergeant Wilson, <laughs> although even though it's 10 years before that series was made. And he plays the butler in Baskerville Hall. Well, you know about the legend of The Hound of the Baskervilles, don't you? Do you believe it? Do you really believe that there is a creature out there? I don't know what to believe, sir. All I know is that I've heard it. Heard its terrible howl on the night before Sir Charles died. And I never want to hear such a sound again in all my life. He's got a lovely way of being able to deliver a bit of exposition in a way that's kind of funny and has a character to it as well. He's great. Uh, Miles Mallison's in it. And um, yeah, yeah. Ewan Solon, who in every Hammer film I've ever seen, he's in quite a few Hammer films. He, he was part of the Repertory Company in the early 60s, uh, who always plays bad-tempered people. Right. If you want somebody to be really gruff and grumpy, you go for Ewan Solon, because he's in The Curse of the Werewolf. Right. And all he does, he, you know, he just, all he does is shout at people. Okay. Maybe you made more time to call this. Uh and in this film as well, he's very grumpy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, so I don't know what he's like. Lovely oh. man in real life, I'm sure, but... What name is it? Stapleton. I've not yeah. seen him in that much, but he has great presence. He's in a early Jack the Ripper yes, he's in, film yeah. as well. Early 60s Jack the Ripper film. So yeah, so you know, so we don't get any of that kind of turn-of-the-century London atmosphere that you kind of expect in a Sherlock Holmes film. That's just not on Hammer's radar. They don't care. They'd rather get used to the spooky more in as an efficient and as sinister a way as, po- as possible, which is why we get, you know, the, the tarantula stuff. I mean, I think most viewers now realise that tarantulas aren't that dangerous. But hell, you know, James Bond was very scared of one in Doctor No as well, which was only a couple of years later. So it's just a thing. I think I'd be scared of one if I saw one now, so I can quite understand why. Well, I Christopher suppose... Christopher Lee has a bit of a... Turn. <laughs> yeah, no, no, fair enough. And they do introduce a thing in the, in this film, which I think is a very good dramatic addition, whichever way you look at it, which is that Sir Henry has a heart condition. So and any scene of tension is automatically the more tense mm. because he has that vulnerability. And it makes sense in his family because he, he you know, Sir Charles Baskerville, uh, the whole story started by the fact that Sir Charles Baskerville's been killed mysteriously and he had a heart condition and... Obviously, he suddenly had a heart attack. Was he terrified to death by a spectral creature? Did the hound really come for him? Kind of thing. That's that's what tips the that's what sets the whole mystery in motion. Yeah, and then when you get to the moors, it's uh, they filmed it in Surrey, um, and they did do some some bits of the moors are a studio set, very beautifully lit, very beautifully shot. Especially, you know, the the kind of marshes and the there's a central kind of ruined church that a lot of the action is set in. It just looks stunning. Um, and they did do a bit of filming down at Dartmoor itself, the, the real location, 
but that, but not with any of the actors, just for kind of insert shots and things. There is an atmosphere to it. That with oh, the, there's, there's a doomy atmosphere. It's not the seductively eerie atmosphere of the novel, but the, 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 the combination of the sets and the location filming and the James Bernard music uh, just kind of droning on that does it, it it creates a nice mood oh yeah no, it is a very atmospheric film and it's uh the production values are very high the sets and the culture or you know like i say everybody at hammer is is, is you know working at their at their peak at that time you know yeah. i just don't think i think we ought also mention um how good peter cushing is in this He's film because uh Sherlock Holmes is a character that's kind of peter cushing played several times it's mm. kind of associated with him but this was the first time this was the first time yes and what i was saying about um so many of those little character moments that are in the book are not in this film. It's a shame because Peter Cushing could have done them brilliantly. And he does do oh, yeah. them brilliantly in subsequent versions. Yes. Um, but they're not. he's not really allowed to play the character in this. He, he, again, he's sort of like the action hero, which he does terrifically. But because um, there's a later... Are we allowed to talk about the later yes. BBC version? There is another... Peter Cushing is in another version of The Hound of the Basketballs. Well, that, one of the reasons I love him... Is because he's in two versions of The Hound of the Baskervilles. Yes. It's a bit like I, I, I think of Bill Murray playing Scrooge twice because he did Scrooge and he also did Groundhog Day, which is kind of a version of A Christmas Carol, I think. Yes. Um, and, and, and I love seeing an actor get two opportunities to take the similar material from different angles. Mm. And we have that exactly here with Peter Cushing because in 1968. The BBC had made a TV series of Sherlock Holmes. Well, in '65, they'd made a black and white TV drama series, um, just called Sherlock Holmes, I think. Or it's called The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. I'm not sure. Anyway, and it had Douglas Wilmer as Sherlock Holmes and Nigel Stock as Doctor Watson. And it went down very well. Three years later, they paid some more money to the um, estate of Conan Doyle and said, "Right, we're going to do more." But Douglas Wilmer didn't want to do it. He felt that he might be typecast as detective types, which he, I guess he was. Yeah. And they then offered it to John Neville, who just played Sherlock Holmes in a film called A Study in Terror, Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper, which is probably in the bag of death. Mm. And um, and he couldn't do it because he was the director of a theatre and he just didn't have the time. So in a horrible th oh, third choice thing, they went to Peter Cushing and didn't tell him he was third choice. And he went, yes, I'd love to, <laughs> to play Sherlock Holmes again. So he came and, and did that. And... Um, it was a, a nightmarish production that was under-budgeted and badly produced, um, went fell behind schedule very quickly um, and was a bit of a nightmare for him because he hadn't done TV for like 10 years. Um, and the fact that the schedules were so fast, and it's kind of like theatre, really. It was like learning a new play every week was doing a, an, ep a, an episodic TV series for the, for the BBC. And um, by... A certain accounts it was a very stressful experience for him and then because the BBC had not negotiated the deal um, like a, an exclusive deal with Conan Doyle Estate they then couldn't repeat it in its entirety and they couldn't sell it abroad to other stations which is why most of the tapes were junked yeah. so they made 16 episodes and I think we've got 6 that we can watch well, I've seen... There, there are a few available, yes, on DVD, and I've seen... The only one I've seen is The Hound of the Baskervilles. It was a very prestigious series, because I've looked... I've got this biography of Peter Cushing, and, and the guest stars, people like Dennis Price and Cecil Parker, sure. and people like that. So it was like, it must have been a big series. It. I mean, I suppose to people now, it does perhaps look a bit stagey and a little bit sort of... 
the I editing think, is a bit. People seem to be get cut off mid sentence sometimes. Um, well, I, th- I think bear in mind it was the um, first, uh, the first ever BBC drama series in colour. Things I don't mind it being stagey. That's the thing. I I quite like that. There is, I mean, there is a bit at the beginning. You say that the the, the version the, ham, the Hammer version of the Hand of the Baskervilles, where the evil Sir Hugo chases after the girl, yeah. is the best version. In the BBC version, it might be the worst version. Uh, it's certainly got the worst. Uh, riding a horse uh, sort of scene basically the actor who plays Sir Hugo an actor called Gerald Flood is just bouncing up and down in front of a black screen <laughs> uh, you don't even see the horse at all it's just and then suddenly it starts live action then he gets on this horse and then suddenly it goes into still photographs yes when he texts, I, I have seen like, this I don't know whether they'd run out of money or that was some kind of artistic decision I don't know but it looks a bit weird but once you get over that I think it's great I, I, I like the fact that it's quite you know, it's done like a play. Well, I think I've not seen all of it. You very kindly lent it to me, and I've watched about half the first episode, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the rest of it, which I've not really had time. Um, but no, I, I like it a lot. I think because of that stage equality, because of the emphasis on people talking in rooms and telling stories, you've got the holes. You do see the flashback with Sir Hugo, but there's also a lovely scene at the beginning with Sir Charles Baskerville before he dies telling the story to Dr. Mortimer and Stapleton, I think. This is before Sherlock Holmes ever gets involved. You know, this is stuff that most versions of the story just ignore. It's not in the book, but it's a lovely, eerie scene. And it sets up the atmosphere and the plot beautifully. And that eerie quality that I was talking about being missing from the Hammer film is in the BBC one. Yes. Yeah, um, and Sir Charles is actually played by Ballard Barclay, who plays the Major. In Faulty Towers. Oh, right. But absolutely playing it, you know. You, you wouldn't know that. Completely different side, you know, playing it absolutely straight and, and being brilliant. But the reason I like this version so much, again, like I say, it is a bit, there are a few technical, it looks a bit, perhaps, I know, a bit old-fashioned to modern audiences. But because Peter Cushing has got so much of the original Conan Doyle dialogue to say, mm. you know, it's much more like he's being Sherlock Holmes. He's getting a chance to play Sherlock Holmes properly, as it were. You know, the, the whole range of Sherlock Holmes's characters there sure, yeah. for him to play. Uh, and I really like that. So kind of like, um, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it simply because it's great to see him play Sherlock Holmes. Uh, and Nigel Stock's very good as Dr. Watson. It's, it's a very good production, I think. Um, got some eerie moments in it. Mm. Uh, I, I mean, uh, as I say, I've not seen all of it, but I've seen a bit of the location stuff. And it's the first version that anybody ever did where it's actually filmed on Dartmoor. And it looks very nice. And I love the way that, you know, when you're telling a ghost story, this kind of story, you've got to be very subtle with the style, which Hammer were not. No. Hammer was all style. And that's fine. And I love it. But I think, you know, if, if you want to cultivate an atmosphere of the possibility of a supernatural presence in human lives, then you just have to show human lives and then let the implications float in just from what you don't do mm. and in a way this production does kind of do that a bit by just showing Dartmoor and when they go to you know when they're on the train and the carriage going to Baskerville Hall it's not you know the, the photography and the music is not telling you it's scary it's quite jolly mm. you know yeah. um, but there's something um, a bit disquieting about it and that's kind of what it should be I think yeah Yes, it should be. I mean, yeah, you know, because, like I said, the Hammer style works brilliantly for Dracula and Frankenstein because those things are inherently absurd. You know, mm. those sort of 
creatures. They are the you know. But if you do them in that really pacey kind of you have, melodramatic way, you have way, to do them with works. style. Yeah, it's like unapologetically. Yeah, you know, full on, and it works like that. So like we're not you know. Um, this is a slightly different kind of story. Um, but yeah, it has to be more unsettling, more unnerving, more you know, disquieting rather than shocking. Sort of, you know. Yeah, and as a result of that, though, we've got two very different versions of the Hound of the Baskervilles, which tell the story in very different ways with the same lead actor mm. and contrast marvelously. And I'm really pleased that we've got that. Um, I've seen a bit more of the Cushing TV series and other things, which we'll talk about more. In uh, uh, we're going to do an extra to go out with this episode, where we'll talk about the, the actually several other Sherlock Holmes productions involving either Lee or Cushing. And we can talk a little bit more about Cushing's TV series there and a few other productions that are interesting and just um, other Sherlock Holmesy bits and bobs. But having said that, I think we should also mention um, Marla Landy. Yes. Um, uh, she plays the uh, character who's kind of based a bit on someone from the book, but not really. She's quite different to most versions of this character in most films, and she's... I think she's supposed to be like a girl who's grown up in Spain, but um, is English by descent and has been brought over and lives on the moor. And Cushing apparently spotted her and recommended her. And I don't want to say too much about her role because it's kind of involved with the way the ending is different. But I think she's great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I can understand why Peter Cushing spotted her. <laughs> yes. Mm. Well, no, no, you know, although she's a, her, her character is a bit incongruous in the Sherlock Holmesy world, she fits in marvellously with the hammer tone. Oh, yeah, yeah. And what she, happened? I mean, did she go on to anything else? Well, she was an Italian actress and model. Uh, and, yeah, she went on to something quite surprising. She became a presenter of Play School. Really? Throughout the 1960s. Yeah, yeah. Um, I Unfortunately, I can't really find any clips of her on, on YouTube or whatever, but she I found various mentions of her. So she did a few films. Um and, you know, she did a lot of modelling in the 50s and then later on became a children's TV presenter. And wow. I think she was like Miss Spain or something. Oh, no, sorry, Miss Italy or something like that. You know, she's quite a celebrity in her own country who then kind of came over to Britain and became uh, well-known in a quite different way. So, mm. But, yeah, she's... Yeah, she's great. She's great in this film um, and, and really adds something to it. I, and I actually like... As much as I, it might sound like I'm knocking the film for kind of pushing a, a non-gothic story into the gothic realm i like the bits where they do that and it works and i wish they kind of done more like that i think some of it like the, the bit with the spider it's not that great a scene no and it's more like oh this is a bit gothicy, and it's cheap let's do that you know i wish they'd come up with something better than that you know um and i'd be totally happy if, the, if there was more like, she works though she's great um and uh, and I, th I, I although you've already talked a bit about Andre Morel, um, I want to just say a little bit more because he's a great lead. Yes. He is, as you say, for a large chunk of this film, he's the lead, and he's fantastic. And you're with um, Doctor Watson. He isn't an, an idiot. Um, he's obviously a little bit outpaced by Sherlock Holmes, but he recognises that. But he's 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 shrewd. He's wry. All the scenes where he talks to all the other characters are just really entertaining because he's so um you know he's so 
he conveys being interested so well and and also he's got that very english reserve about him you know he's he's very gentlemanly yeah. but you also get the sense that he's not to be messed with. There's well, exactly. Something... When he takes centre stage, he he becomes the lead. He becomes the hero, and, and he's entirely comfortable in that. Mm. I think, yeah, we're fine. You know, we don't we don't really need Sherlock Holmes. Watson can kind of sort this out in a different way. He's not as brilliant as Sherlock Holmes, but he's pretty. You know, you get the feeling he's pretty resourceful, pretty tough. He can handle himself, and he's intelligent because he's a doctor. So, yeah, I think Andrew. Because I mean, I know people knock Nigel Bruce's performance. Yes, unjustly. Films. I don't. I think it's a great performance. I think it's suitable for those films. It's not. That's not the Doctor Watson of the books, but I think it works for those films, the Basil Rathbone films, to contrast with the brilliance and the sort of like the, the, the slightly brusque, slightly offhand sometimes character that Basil Rathbone plays. Yeah. Uh, so I don't mind that at all. I think, I think he's funny. But, you know, Doctor Watson can be played in several different ways. He's a, he's a more, in a way, you know, Sherlock Holmes is such a defined character. Dr. Watson is, is a less defined character. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so, uh, you know, he can be played by John Mills or Nigel Stock or whoever. And they all work. And in this, he's played by Andre Morel, who, who I think is a great actor. And proved he's a leading actor by going on to play leading roles in other Hammer films like Plague of the Zombies and Shadow of the Cat and yeah, yeah. other things. So, And he's perfectly capable of playing the lead, you know, and, and Hammer recognised that. And he's a, he's a very comfortable presence and very kind of reassuring, but he's sort of... You know, he can handle himself. And he gets billing above Christopher Lee uh, yes. in the opening titles. So, you know, they, they clearly knew he was important in the scheme of the film and it, and generally as an actor, you know. There's recently been a very nice Blu-ray of this film released, fully restored with commentary with Mark Gatiss, I think, and Jonathan Rigby and, and a documentary. And looks looks great. I don't have a Blu-ray player, so it's no good to me. Nor me. But I've seen some clips and... Um, Lee says that he loved this part because it's one of the few times when he's been able to play essentially a romantic lead. Well, yeah, he is playing a romantic lead in this, and he didn't. I mean, that's the thing about um, Christopher Lee. He was tight. He he did play a lot of slightly, rather kind of humorless authority figures. Yeah, he seemed to be cast in that in that role, and he wasn't allowed to play romantic leads and and or, or, or character parts or anything anything like that. He was always kind of Cushing always had much more range. He was given lots of different characters to play. Uh, in the horror mm. genre. He was typecast by genre. He was not typecast by character in that genre. He played all sorts of parts. Yeah. Whereas Christopher Lee was always slightly more, maybe because of Dracula or whatever, um, maybe because he's just so tall, whatever, because of his voice. I don't know, yeah. but he was always typecast. Slightly more rigid. Rigid, rigid and all stiff or... Yeah. Uh, but no, as I say, I do think he's enjoying himself in this film. Mm. There is chemistry between him and Marla Landy. Um, and an interesting... It's an interesting relationship that develops between them that is kind of plot based on plausible attraction, although their personality types don't really uh, mesh at all. No. But uh, that that's kind of um, part of the point, and it, and it works, uh, I think. Oh, well, it's sometimes in life. Mm. Oh, yeah, works. oftentimes. Oftentimes, yeah. Um, you know, that, um, yeah, people... Yeah, that's that's what it's all about. It, it don't mean a thing if I ain't got that zing, Howard, <laughs> or so I'm told. Um, that's what they say. So That's, that's what Shakespeare said. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I think we're um, I think we're coming up to time, really, so we probably 
want to move on from talking about the Hound of the Baskervilles. Um, is there anything else we want to say about it particularly? No, I just want to. I just want to say I think it's a terrific film. I think it's very enjoyable. I think everything about it is great, mm. apart from the script, which just changes. I think a little bit too much. Tries to adhere to a formula that's proven to be successful in Hammer films, but just isn't quite uh, an adaption of the book. Mm. It doesn't really give the. The, the spirit of the book. But Cushing is great. Andre Morel is great. The whole cast. Francis DeWolf, another yeah. regular, is terrific in it. Marla Landy, she's marvellous in all sorts of ways. Uh, the, the production values, the sets, the costumes, everything. It's all Hammer at its best. Yeah, I mean... It's a thoroughly enjoyable film. I i think I've said it already, but I absolutely love that Ruin Church set and, and the scenes where you just kind of see them all at night, which are clearly filmed in studio. I think most of them are. But the, the colours in the sky and the silhouettes and things, just beautiful stuff, Jack Asher. And um, James Bernard music. Yeah. Um, there is a, in in the opening Sir Hugo sequence, um, you know, there is, a, there is a reprise of some of the music from Dracula. Yes, which, I noticed that when I watched it again recently. Um, and which apparently uh, James Bernard like, said he, he didn't know that. And he'd written something else, and he didn't find out until years later that they'd shoved a, a recycled piece of music in, and he would never have done that. I don't know. Um, I, I think um, I think it works. It's really good. But it does bring me to uh, the question of, when you started to get into Hammer films, I mean, when I first saw this film, I saw it before I saw any of the others. Because I didn't see it as a horror film. I didn't watch it because I was into horror films or Hammer. I watched it because I was scared of the Hound of the Baskervilles. My friend Ben Maders, I might try and get him to listen to this. Not the Ben who I've previously involved in our um, escapades. He'll remember this. Um, at primary school, I was terrified of a ladybird book of the Hound of the Baskervilles. Because it had an absolutely terrifying cover of just this glowing demonic dog. And, you know... People, all the kids got to know that I was so scared of it. So they would sneak up to me from behind with the book and then shove the picture in front of my face and I'd go, ah! you know, and I'd really freak out. Um, but that's kind of the thing that, that that allowed the Hand of the Baskervilles to sink its teeth into me, as to her, and, um, uh, and, and never let go. So I watched, I, I, I got up very early one morning in about 1992 and watched a recording of Anne of the Baskervilles, this film, and thought it was pretty good. Um, you know, really enjoyed it. Uh, didn't really know who anybody was. Um, but yeah, I remember, I remember being swept away. I remember being a little bit, bit, being a bit disappointed by the appearance of the Hound. I think the Hound is always a bit disappointing in most of the versions. In fact, nearly all the versions I've seen, the Hound... It's difficult to do. It is very difficult to do, because it kind of like... Once you see it... You know, it's built up so much in the book. It's built up so much in the story that once you actually see it, inevitably it's going to be disappointing. Yeah. It's like it's it's what you don't see is scarier than what you do see. And I quite I don't know whether this is true or not, but I was quite amused by the story that in order to make the hound look bigger, they got children to dress up in the costumes of the lead characters to stand by it to make it look. Yeah, yeah. they did do that um, in the Hammer film, but they didn't use any of the footage in right. the film because they just thought it was ridiculous. I think Terence Fisher said in a very um, uh, good, useful book, uh, Wayne Kinsey's The Brave Studios Years. There's a quote from Terence Fisher where he said, um, it did look like a couple of kids and a very big dog. <laughs> Which it was. They used a great Dane whose name famously was Colonel, who was just not that fast and they couldn't really get him to act threatening. Um, he was quite big, but he just wouldn't really do anything. Um, 
And although in the book and most film versions, um, the idea is that the Hound is a real dog, but it's been made to look supernatural because they've put paint on, paint on it. In the Hammer film, they say they've, they've put a mask on it to make it look more frightening. It's like, uh, mm. again, it's, it's making it more physical and yeah. it's got this big weird head, but um, it, it just does, it doesn't look like much. Well, uh, no, you can't really tell, no. to be honest. Um, He's got a mask on. Well, there is this shot where um, Christopher Lee looks up and the hound is standing above him. It's like on a promontory. Um, but because of the way it's shot and because it's wearing this big mask on its head, it looks like it's got a massive head and a really small body and it just looks kind of comical. Um, so, yeah, they struggle with that a bit. I think there are some versions of the of the story where they, they've managed to do a decent hound. Again, not the Richard Roxburgh one, no. where it was made by the people who made Walking with Dinosaurs and they're all about CGI monsters and creatures. And they're like, yeah, we can do it. It'll be amazing. So they do have this big, weird, computer-generated creature that appears at the end. But it just it's like, what the hell is that? Kind of thing. Yeah, but the thing is, the Hound of the Baskervilles has to be a dog. Yeah, yeah. It's not a supernatural creature. It has to be a dog that could exist in real life. So it yeah. can't look, you know... No, no. Be CGI and look like a some uh, kind of strange creature. I do think the one in the Jeremy Brett version is quite good, where it is just a dog which kind of glows a bit because it's got stuff painted on it. And um, and actually, the it's weird because in the Basil Rathbone one, when you see the hound in the flashback with Sir Hugo, it's just a really vicious looking dog and it's genuinely alarming looking. Mm. You can see its teeth, uh, and it uh, and it's quite scary. Then when it appears later on in the film, though, it, it doesn't make much of an impact strangely but but yeah but so but anyway you, the the appearance of the hound is the only slight letdown in the film despite everything we've said the rest of it is thoroughly enjoyable yes. and even the and the the climax is very exciting despite the appearance of the hound everything else about the climax is really mm. dramatic and well done the only other thing i want to say really about the movie um or rather ask about the movie howard is that you know kind of going back to the james bernard's recycled music bit also there are recycled sets in this film as i say you know in later years once i'd become familiar with hammer films every time i tried to watch the hound of the baskervilles i couldn't really get into it because like that's not baskerville hall it's dracula's castle you know it kind of looks very similar on the inside some of the outside fittings are exactly the same does that take you out of it a bit is that a danger of watching hammer films that you start to become too familiar with Especially the early ones with the kind of recycled stuff. Or does that add to the charm? I would say that adds to the charm. Recently, I bought uh, a box set that had Plague of the Zombies and the Reptile on. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I watched them within... A the Ultimate. Other, and they both use the same... The Ultimate example. They're, well, the same director same... on the same sets mm. within the same couple of months. And some of the same cast. Yes. And you think, oh, yeah, I recognise that. But it does, no, it doesn't take you out of it. No. Mm. I, I... Because the film is so good that... Uh, no, yeah. no, it doesn't. It doesn't. Well, I, I sometimes think it, when you can see how things are put together, you can see the cracks in a way, and your imagination goes into the cracks. I and, admire their ingenuity. Yeah, yeah. In uh, recycling the sets and everything. I, I think it just annoys me slightly just in this film, just because it's like I'm going, no, that's Baskerville Hall. It shouldn't look like that. Yeah. It shouldn't look like a, a gothic castle in Carpathia. You know, but it does. So there you go. And it is effect. You know, it is effective and strangely beautiful. Um, and just, a, I feel like I should say because you criticised the script. Um, do you know that Peter Bryan wrote the Plague of the Zombies? Uh, I think I did. And didn't he also write the Brides of Dracula? He co-wrote that. Co-wrote. Yeah. So, so when he's writing proper Hammer Gothic horror films, yeah, it's great. He's he's brilliant because those films are brilliant. 
two of the best, actually, two of the best Hammer films, in my opinion. I just, I don't think it's a bad, I just think they've had to change things, they've had to slightly twist things and distort things in order to make this story into a Hammer horror film and it doesn't quite fit, it well, doesn't quite work. Yeah. Things have to be changed, like people with their webbed hands. And when you see the guy with the webbed hand, you kind of know he's going to be the villain. So, But is he, Howard? But is he, well, really? Well, anyway, um, yeah, and I and I think uh, again, I I did used to get annoyed with this film because I'm a Hammer fan, but also a Sherlock Holmes film fan, and it's like this film is not one thing nor the other; it's kind of in between, and you kind of have to accept that and enjoy it as that, and and it is a strange mixture of um, kind of pleasures, really. Mm. But a, a, a great piece of work, and you know what? I love the fact. Um, this is the final thing I'm mentioning, and then we're going to finish, unless you want to add anything else, Howard. No, I can Okay, the final thing I'm going to mention that I love about this film is the very first thing in the film. It's the fact that when the uh, logo of the distributor, which I think is Universal International, but might be different depending on which print you watch, it fades to black, and before the music comes up and the credits start, you've just got a black screen... And a thundercrack. And I love the confidence of that. It's like three or four films in, Hammer know exactly what they're doing now and they know what you're here for. It's doom, it's it's atmosphere, it's style, and it's like boom yeah. and then you slowly have this fade up to um, a classical matte painting of the uh, of the hall with Hammer Film Productions presents and the music comes up and it's like it's a great opening. Yes, and then you go straight from the credits into the flashback. This is the other thing. Some versions, including the book, you know, they they don't tell you the flashback straight at the start. The flashback comes in the middle when Doctor Mortimer tells it to Sherlock Holmes, or even later on. But in this version, you're right in there. And again, that's Hammer. It's like we're going to show you. That's what I love about Hammer. Yeah, yeah. It's their confidence. It's their unapologetically going for it. And and it's and... such, although it's a horrific little kind of vignette. Um, it's beautiful. You know, the red of all the guys' jackets shines out the night. That You know, especially with Sir Hugo, the, the red in his eyes and the red on his jacket, um, the, the, the set decoration, the full-bloodedness of it, and the way that David Oxley says, Who does she think she is that she does this to me? Damn her, damn her! And he sort of tears her handkerchief up that she's left behind. You know, everything about it is, is full on and that's completely appropriate. In a way, what I would like to do is re-edit different versions of The Hound of the Baskervilles and put this flashback into whichever film the rest of it would be because it's, it's like a little film in itself and it's just beautiful. So. so there we go, folks, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Yes, it's very good. If it's on a Sunday afternoon, you sit down and watch it and you'll thoroughly enjoy it. And Cushing's great, Andre Morel is great, everybody's... It's, it's great, it's and Hammer. You, and you know what? And it's because... A few Hammer films have a slight crossover appeal into another genre. And because of the Sherlock Holmes thing, yeah, this film will often be on on a Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon. Sit down and watch it. A lot of people will see this and it'll be their only ever Hammer film. And it'll be an enjoyable experience. My, I know my niece said to me a few years ago, she watched it and she loved it. I don't think she's ever watched any others. It's potentially a good way in. Mm. But if it's the only one you ever see, it's pretty good as well. Yes. So. Although do see others. Yes, for <laughs> God's sake. <laughs> Don't miss out on The Bride of Dracula, for heaven's sake. No, or Frankenstein must be destroyed. Indeed. 
Why is why are we recording at a location? <laughs> <laughs> because we're about to go into rehearsal. Yeah, we're going to rehearse a play. Yes, we are going yes. to rehearse a play. Yes. Yeah, we're, we're, we're meeting we're in in a, in a cafe, in a very nice cafe actually, in Manchester. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you might, you might hear cops. So let's let's think about um, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing um, and the many films in which they either played Sherlock Holmes or a character in the Sherlock Holmes universe, apart from The Hound of the Baskervilles. I think it's kind of interesting and weird the, the, the way that both of their careers were dogged by Holmes. Dogged, no pun intended. No pun intended, um, <laughs> Thank God. I wouldn't intentionally they're, do they're, that. They're both, well, they both, I mean, you have to be a particular kind of actor to play Sherlock Holmes. And... They, they adhere to that sort of type. They're mm. lean, gaunt, have that kind of yeah, style of acting, their style of acting is suitable for Aquiline it. nose. They have aquiline nose and incisive and... and yeah, I was like theatrical, but you know, that sort of... The, the, the same kind of performances that they do in the, in the Hammer films I mean, is, is suitable for... Because Sherlock Holmes is a performer mm. as a character, you know, he, he gets off on... Create, he's a bit like Darren Brown. Yes. He gets off on creating a, a, a theatrical effect. So, and, and he's very manipulative. He's all, uh, of the like this, the um, his clients and the suspects. You know, he in order to get the effect, just the effect he wants. He, he does kind of stage manage his investigations in a way. So I think that's kind of appropriate. So we've got in in fifty nine we have the Hand of the Baskervilles. Um, directed by Terence Fisher, part of Hammer's initial flurry of gothic classics. And then very quickly after that, uh, he didn't do... Um, you might hear that it didn't do well enough at the box office to merit a sequel. So Cushing never played Sherlock Holmes again for Hammer. Uh, but I have read, I think it's in Alan Barnes' Sherlock Holmes on screen book, that actually Hammer would never have countenanced doing a sequel because the... Um, the Alpha Conan Doyle estate was still very militant at that time and he, and, and he had not been dead that long you still had to pay for the rights and they just weren't going to oh, right. um, so you know so whether or not it was successful at the box office is kind of immaterial however there was a German company who were willing to pay for the rights um, and they wanted to launch a series of Sherlock Holmes films um, uh, with international appeal and they did not approach, well, they approached Terence Fisher to direct the first film in, in their sequence. And I don't know whether it was Fisher or them, but they also, they then got Christopher Lee to play Sherlock Holmes. I, I don't know if they considered getting Peter Gushing, but for some reason, yeah, it, the, the thing, it was thought that, he, anyway, they cast Christopher Lee and Thorley well, Walters. Isn't it said Walters. that Peter Gushing didn't like to travel? Perhaps he wouldn't want to go to Germany then. Uh, but I, <laughs> is that, is that? I think earlier in his career he might have been better with it. I don't, I don't know. Maybe he was just happy uh, living with his wife in Whitstable. And, and later on, once she died, he was more willing to go to Greece and make movies yeah. and things like that. But, um, yeah, I mean, there is that as well. So, so Thorley Walters, who's also a, a great presence in British horror films, playing Dr. Watson. And the film, that's, the resultant film is called... Um, forgive my accent. I think it's called Sherlock Holmes und das Hausband der Todes, or uh, I don't know what accent that was. Um, it was Jernish, I think. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, huh. But or in its English title, Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace. Have you seen this, Howard? I've seen some of it. Um, I was quite astonished um, and amused to see that both Christopher Lee and Paulie Walters were dubbed. Yes. Well, everyone was dubbed. Everybody was dubbed, but. I don't know anybody else, but I do know uh, Christopher mm. Lee and Dolly Walters and their voices, to me, are so 
familiar. I would have thought Christopher Lee's voice is familiar to everybody, so to see them dubbed is quite yeah. strange. Well, have, um, I mean, I actually have worked on an international film Ooh. as an actor. Um, so, I, we, so and I did, until I did that, I didn't realise the kind of um, the standard when you've got um, a mixture of, of uh, nationalities in your cast is that everybody speaks in their own accent and then you dub it all, uh, everyone speaks in their own language even though that means they don't understand what each other is saying and then you dub it all later to make it consistent and I think that's clearly what they did here but they were cheap or something and they didn't bother going to get the actual cast. You'd think if it was a major star like Christopher Lee, whose voice is known to the audience, you'd get him to dub himself. Well, it, it, yes, you would. And but they didn't, and they got, in fact, they got all American actors to dub it. So it, it's really weird. I mean, if you turn the sound off, or you, you screen out the voices somehow, it looks great, it's black and white, but it has, what the Hound of the Baskerville likes is that it has a, a, a I think it's set in about 1910-ish. Um, and uh, it has like it has it, and the, the London exterior locations are actually filmed in Ireland whereas the studio interior is I think filmed in France um, but the the, um, the Irish location stuff has, has a real kind of smoky Victorian London foggy atmospheric thing to it and, <clears throat> and that works really well and that's exactly what is lacking for budgetary reasons in the Hammer Hound yeah, of the Basketball yeah. so that's really good and the plot, uh, the script is written by Kurt Seidmack, who wrote a lot of the universal horrors like The Wolfman. He wrote The Wolfman, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, it's, it's quite, it's quite an uh, intriguing plot. Moriarty's in it, and there's some good kind of bandying dialogue between him and Holmes. Um, it, it's just you've got to get over the fact that everybody's dubbed, and, you know, badly dubbed as it. It doesn't match up with anybody's lips or anything like that. And they're, they all sound American. And, and um, the... As, as Alan Barnes pointed out, they all pronounce Moriarty as Moriarty. Yeah, it's a Moriarty. Yes. Um, it's a Moriarty. So that, that film uh, did not do well in its dubbed release, <laughs> so they never made any more. Christopher Lee yeah, was quite irritated, I think. I think it's weird, considering the, the, the fandom of Christopher Lee and, and Thorley Waters, and the kind of their standing with produce, you know, the, the lots of producers like Kevin Francis who were fans of their work. No one ever thought while they were alive of, shall we just re-record all the dialogue from Sherlock Holmes and uh, and the Deadly Necklace and dub it properly and release a restored version? It'd be great. That I mean, it's got a weird jazz music score as well, isn't it? which I quite liked, but some people think it's very un Sherlock. Well, at least it makes a change from the violin music, which is such a cliche. Yeah, the Sherlock Holmes film series has to have violin music. Yes, because yes, because he played the violin, which is spurious justification, yeah, yeah, really. Um, so that's so. So moving beyond that, we then go through the sixties, and I think the next thing that happens is the BBC had a TV series of Sherlock Holmes uh, in I think sixty-five, and it starred Douglas Wilmer as Holmes and uh, Nigel Stock as Watson. Um, Douglas Wilmer then became afraid of typecasting, so when they came to do the second series, which was in, I think, 68, he didn't want to do it, which is weird because straight after... I think the next thing he did was play Nayland Smith in one of the Fu Manchu films, which was not that far removed a kind of character. No. Um, and he later did play Sherlock Holmes in Gene Wilder's The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. With Thorley Walters. With Thorley Walters, yeah. Um, who also later 
played uh, Dr. Watson to Christopher Plummer's yeah. Sherlock in the CV thing. Yeah, you know, this is the, the, the world of Sherlock. As you say, you know, there's a certain type of actors are appropriate for it, so they recur, even if it's in different roles or in, with different partners and whatever. Um, so anyway, in 68, the BBC went ahead with mounting its second series of Sherlock Holmes. So they kept Nigel Stark. Douglas Wilmer was obviously not having anything to do with it. They were going to do it in colour. It's one of their first ever colour dramas. Um, and they obviously needed a replacement Holmes. They thought about John Neville, who had played Holmes in the sort of Jack the Ripper horror film, A Study in Terror, in 66, I think. Um, but he wasn't available, so they then asked Cushing, uh, who was by that point, you know, 10 years on from the Hammer, Hound of Baskerville. Cushing was a huge um, Holmes fan, as we discussed in the other, in the full podcast episode. And he was well up for it, although he hadn't done any major TV, apart from like filming the odd episode of The Avengers or something, since um, the mid-50s. But he was well up for it, and he, and he signed on. Um, the production itself, however, proved to be a bit of a nightmare, and very, very intense, like making a film every two weeks. Um, and it was... Uh, there are accounts of it was difficult on many levels, and the fact that it was the first ever colour drama, and they were struggling on the budget and things, uh, and it resulted in Cushing saying he'd never do a regular TV series ever again. But we've, we've, we've both seen some episodes, and... Um, well, Howard, what do you well, think? I've seen. I've I bought the Hound of the Baskervilles, which um, it's a mixed bag. I mean, it is a very faithful adaptation, and you do get to see Cushing play kind of Sherlock Holmes in his entirety, saying the actual dialogue from the from the book and all yes. the business about the st- and it, So it's it's quite a faithful adaptation. It's as you say, it was a, an early colour production, so technically it's a bit chunky. The editing is a bit suddenly, you know, yeah, yeah. really quick cuts and everything, and it does have. One of the most hilarious horse riding scenes at the beginning, where Sir Henry, um, is it, no, it's Hugo, isn't it? Who's the bad it's, guy? It's Sir Hugo. Sir yeah. Hugo uh, is jumps on his horse and races after this girl at the beginning, and it's quite obviously the actor Gerald Flood who's playing Hugo, just bouncing up and down in front of his screen. <laughs> uh, there's not even like a fake horse's head; it's just him going up and down. And then suddenly, um, and she looks like she's just walking down a garden path or something. And then suddenly it goes into photographs. Yeah. It's like, well, they ran out of film or something, so they just had photographs. So that's at the beginning, you think, what the hell is this going to be like? But then once you get into it, once you see Peter Cushing and Nigel Stock in the consulting rooms and in, in, uh, Dr. Mortimer comes, it's, it's, um, it's, like, it's actually, I think, a very good adaptation. Yeah. Um, and I, the acting I, is excellent and the script is excellent. I, I think. think it has, the, the interior scenes have a kind of quiet intensity to them, which reminds me of kind of BBC ghost stories. Reminds me a little bit of those Amar James things and, and also some of those Nigel Neal dramas you know um, like Beasts something like yeah, that yeah. you know there's a the, the acting is of such an intensity and there's a, a, a great use of storytelling you actually unlike in many versions of Hound of the Baskervilles you, there's a scene near the start with Sir Charles mm. who's normally he dies off screen before the beginning and he tells the story of the Baskerville curse to a Dr. Mortimer and Stapleton, I think. They're having yes, like a gentleman's drink together. And it's a really spooky scene. It's really nice. Um, then later in the story, when you, you actually go to Dartmoor and you've got the external filming, they filmed on Dartmoor. It's the first ever Hound of the Baskervilles filmed on the appropriate locations. I mean, the Hammer one was made in Surrey. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looks great. Uh, I think also, it, it, you know, 
this the, the episodes of the, the, uh, the Hound of the Baskervilles were done quite early in the series in the shooting of the series yes. so they hadn't started to run out of money yet <laughs> um, and Cushing probably wasn't as stressed out as he later was I mean there are things like there's um, as you say it's very faithful and near the start of the book there is a foot chase with a handsome cab yes. in London yeah. and they do that but they do it in a, in a deserted street somewhere on the outskirts of London you know it's, it's, they obviously couldn't afford any extras or anything um, but it looks nice yeah it looks good um, and Peter Cushing is allowed to play all the facets of the characters the humour mm. you know in, in The Hound of the Baskervilles in the film he's just very dashing he's very kind of Van Helsing like I think and very sort of of course yeah but, but it, in this, in this version, because there's more space, there's more time, he's allowed to bring out the humour and, and his relationship with Dr. Watson and, and all the different facets. And I think he probably perhaps enjoyed doing that version more than The Hand of the Baskervilles in that it just allowed him to be the Sherlock Holmes. Well, I, I also saw that because the thing about this series is I think they made about 16 episodes, but most of them don't exist. There's only six episodes surviving. Because, it, because of the terms of the deal with the Conan Doyle people, they couldn't sell it overseas, weirdly. Uh. So there was no point keeping it, so they scrapped a lot of it. And I think some of the episodes only exist in black and white, even though they were filmed in colour. But I did see their version of A Study in Scarlet, which is good, except, of course, as you may know if you're a Holmes fan, that's the story where Sherlock and John uh, meet for the first time. But they don't do that because it's not the first episode of the series, so they cut all that stuff out. But apart from that, it's very faithful to the story. Um, and I just, I, I enjoyed, what, I thought it was great, I enjoyed it, but I, I, I felt for Cushing a little bit because I could kind of, I don't know if it's the first episode he filmed, I, I don't think it was, but um, I could kind of tell that here's an actor who's brilliant but has been only doing films for 10 years, yeah. and it's almost like he's suddenly on stage. Um, that you can see kind of moments where he slightly trips over his lines, or, uh, you know, um, and it's not that's not a problem. It happened a lot in TV that was like almost filmed as live, um, but I think you can sort of see. Maybe I'm reading into it, but I think you can sort of see that he's terrified by that. He's terrified about getting it wrong. He wants to be so precise, and um, when if he does trip over a line, which happens, you know, just once or twice in, in an episode, you can see a moment of. Yeah, well, he Terror. was a perfectionist, wasn't he? I mean, people say yeah. he was a perfectionist. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But he, no, he's great. I think the series is. I think Nigel Stock's pretty good as Doctor Watson, but I, I do think they don't really seem the same age. I think that's, you know, I, I don't think they mesh together as well as Cushing did with Andre Morel. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed it, and I'd like to watch more episodes of it. I'd like to watch more episodes. I mean, it, it was it was good enough. Yeah, like you say, I mean, it, perhaps it does look a bit stagey by today's standards. Well, all television from that time looks stagey by today's standards I suppose but you do you do feel like you're watching the story that it is a faithful adaption of the book and it is exciting there's good performances Philip Bond is good as Stapleton I do think we should mention yeah I think Philip Bond is, is terrific as he Stapleton. just died recently you know? yes he yeah. died also um, I think Stapleton's one of the great villains one of the great cads of literature yeah. and he does a really good uh, essay of him that's that's great um yeah, and I also just get, I think it's, this is one of my favourite factoids, I just like the fact that Cushing, I think, is the only actor to star in two different versions of The Hound of the Baskervilles, and they're both good, yeah. in yeah, very different ways. Um, so then we move a little bit further, well, a couple of years later, 1970, uh, Billy, Wild, Billy Wilder made a film called The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, starring Robert Stevens as Sherlock Holmes, and Colin Blakely as Dr. Watson. Now, some people say that... Um, 
Hammer's Hound and the Bastardals is the best Sherlock Holmes film ever made. I, I believe, uh, you know, some people say Basil Rathbone is the best movie Sherlock Holmes. I, I would know say Basil Rathbone opinion. is the best movie Sherlock Having watched him again recently, I would certainly say that, yes. Uh, and, you know, that his version of Hound is the best film ever made. I think Private Life of Sherlock Holmes is the best Holmes film ever made. I don't, I don't necessarily say Robert Stevens is the best Sherlock ever, although I think he's very good. And I think that a lot of what he does is kind of weirdly prefigures Benedict Cumberbatch in the current Sherlock TV series. Um, but I, it's it's a wonderful film. It's it's kind of nominally a comedy, but it's actually very faithful to the tone and the detail of Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes and the world that they're in. But it brings out all the um, opportunities for comic romance that it can within that, and I think it does a wonderful job. The reason we're talking about it is because Mycroft Holmes, Sherlock Holmes' brother, is in it, and I don't believe that he was the first choice for the role, but whoever they wanted, who might have been someone like Orson Welles, I don't know. If oh, well, yeah. I think because, because Mycroft is like a famously portly character, that's kind of part of the point. But anyway, the, the, the actor that they, they kind of dreamed of casting either wasn't available or just died or something, <laughs> I don't know. But Christopher Lee stepped in. And they kind of, apparently Billy Wilder thought, he totally doesn't look like Mycroft Holmes, he's tall and, and thin, but whatever, he'll be great. And he is great. Yeah. And again, provides a, temper, a template for Mycroft that is followed kind of pretty um, specifically by Mark Gatiss in the current Sherlock show. Um, and uh, yeah, I just think it's a great film. I love everything about it. I think it is a great film. I think it's a great film. It might be the greatest Sherlock Holmes film, yes. And I do think Robert Stevens is brilliant. Robert Stevens is an actor I always enjoy watching in anything. He's one of the few actors who can make Tolkien's dialogue worth listening to. Is he hitting... Um, He's in the Lord radio of, version of Lord of the Rings. Who does he play? Oh, I don't know. All right. Some, I don't know. One of the older people. <laughs> I don't know much about Tolkien. That's not my... Right. Though. But, um, yeah, I think he's a wonderful actor. And he, and he plays... And he brings out the humour of it. Um, really well. And, and when they talk about the missing midgets and all that sort of thing. Or the something. Oh, yes. Yeah, kind of... Um, I just think he gets it. I just think that's a really kind of enjoyable interpretation of, of, of the characters making him a bit warmer and a bit more waspish and a bit more kind of sardonic and uh, that yeah. works for me. Robert Stevens and Ian Richardson are two are two actors who people don't think of as playing Sherlock Holmes, you know, they're not one of the main ones people mm. think about, but I, I think they're both brilliant in their way they because are. they both bring a humour into it. And they're, yeah, they're both warmer and funnier mm. than yeah. most Holmeses. Um, I hope you're enjoying the sound of the coffee machine <laughs> and um, the, the... It's filling up quite nicely. In the yeah, the atmosphere is improving. I just hope the sound quality is okay. Um, so then we, the next one to think about is... Oh, well, we have a whole decade to go through. And, and we were talking earlier about the Google and the producer, Kevin Francis, son of the director, Freddie Francis, who, whose mission was to bring back Hammer without... Or at least Hammer as he liked it, because Hammer hadn't gone by that point. Um, so he made The Ghoul, he made Legends of the Werewolf, and listen to that coffee yeah, machine. Yeah, it's great. Um, <laughs> so he made The Ghoul and he made Legends of the Werewolf. <laughs> so he made The Ghoul! He made the girl. He made Legends of the Were Legend of Legend the Werewolf, of both of which failed, and he didn't make any. And then he, his next thing was to try and make a new Sherlock Holmes film, um, and he, and he wanted it. Apparently, again, this is something I've read in Alan Barnes's book. He wanted it to be a new version of The Hound of the Baskervilles, starring Cushing again. Um, so that would have made it three, three for three. Wow. 
um, and with a hound animated by Ray Harryhausen. Now that would have been good. That, that would have been great. I would have wanted to see that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, the thing is, The Hound of the Baskervilles, I think, is one of the best stories ever. It's one of my favourite stories. I can watch it in any version. So if there were three with Cushing in and one of them had a Ray Harryhausen hound, that would be fine for me as well. But anyway, he couldn't get that off the ground. So, and by the, 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 the 80s, he'd moved into TV. And he was finally able to... Uh, fund a TV a TV movie of Sherlock Holmes in the same year that the Jeremy Brett version started on ITV um, or Granada uh, Channel 4 broadcast Kevin Francis's production The Masks of Death which uh, its u- unique selling point was it was about an older Sherlock Holmes and that Sherlock Holmes was played by Peter Cushing uh, I think if Andre Morel had died in 1978, but I think oh, uh, that's my phone, so I'll just uh, I'll just restate that. Um, I think that given that uh, Kevin Francis was such a Hammer fan and was trying to recreate the heyday of Hammer, had Andre Morel been alive, I think they would have got Andre Morel to play Doctor Watson. Yes. He wasn't though, so they got John Mills, and I I I, I enjoy the coincidence that John Mills had also taken over essentially from Andre Moroba playing Professor Quatermass in the last Quatermass <laughs> series and, and then in, a way, you can, in both cases you can kind of imagine John Mills as a sort of older, milder Andre Morel yeah. they aren't that different yeah, they've got the same kind of avuncular quality and there's, um, the chemistry with Cushing is the same and that, so I recently watched The Mask of Death I had to track down a VHS copy because as we said earlier it's not available on DVD um, and I was delighted by it, actually. I, I thought it succeeded in feeling like a spiritual successor to Hammer's Hound of the Baskervilles and Hammer films generally. It's directed by Roy Ward Baker, who directed a lot of the classic Hammer films. Um, and it's got an all-star cast. Um, I, I know that you you probably saw it at the time, Howard. I don't know if you've seen it, it more time, recently. Yes. I remember enjoying it at the time. Watching it again, I didn't see it all, but I've seen some of it. Watching it again, yeah, it's very it's very enjoyable and everything, and it's an interesting story. There's just something rather sad about seeing all those actors looking so old. They are old, so Peter old. Cushing looks so And, you know, Anne Baxter, who plays Irene Adler, yeah, yeah. died just a year or so later. It's one of her last parts. Right. Ray Milan died a couple of years okay. later. Anton Diffring died a few years later. Yeah. It's great all-star casting. There's, there's John Mills lived to be about 300, so he went off. <laughs> there's but almost no young people in there's it. No, there's no young people. Which Russell is... Hunter from the TV series Callum, isn't yes, it? Yes, from, from Taste of Blood of Dracula as well. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, so, yeah, so you kind of, when you watch it now, you kind of think, well, all these people are kind of at the end of the. And, and Baxter wasn't even all that old, she was 60 odd. All these people are just at the end of their careers mm. in this sort of. There's a kind of like, what's the word, valedictory feel to it, like it's the end of an era type yeah. thing, and everybody. We're coming to the end of the hammer. Well, the hammer tradition is finished, but this is just like the last little sort of gasp of it, kind of, you know, and, and then that's it. And then a new kind of Sherlock Holmes. Well, it was the, the handing over, in a way. I, I see it as the handing over to Jeremy Brett, who took it through the 80s and 90s, mm. uh, you know, from that point, really. I mean, I think Cushing's very good. Yes. In, uh, he's absolutely terrific, and, uh, and he's got all his old energy, despite being, you know, looking yeah, this is the very thing, old. He looks old, but mm. he's still really energetic. He's still really kind of physical. That's, that's the thing about him. Even when, I mean, after his wife died, he did lose an awful lot of weight, again, very gaunt. But he's still running around in, in the films he makes in the 70s and 80s. He's still running around like, like his old self. And it's, 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 I think this might be the point to mention the Van Helsing mysteries. Well, I wanted to mention this at the end before we go. Some, some genius 
um, has put on uh, on YouTube a thing called the Van Helsing Mysteries, and it's like the opening credits of uh, a potential series made by the people who make Columbo because the same yellow writing as they have in Columbo. <laughs> and it's as if uh, they made a series about Van Helsing in the 1970s with Peter Cushing playing Van Helsing, running around solving mysteries, also starring Michael Coles, apparently. <laughs> You've got to watch it. Go on YouTube and type in the Van Helsing mystery. Well, I promise it's you'll an, enjoy it. It's entirely assembled from footage from yeah, Dracula yeah, yeah, from the film, from, Just from Dracula Radio But, it's, but it's it looks great. great. It looks yeah. like it really is a series. Um, so, I, I, you know. I put a comment on uh, on it saying that please do the, uh, the title sequence from season two entirely using footage <laughs> from the Titanic Rise of Dracula. It's just, and when I put I posted it on Facebook, I tried to make out, I tried to say, oh, I remember this series. <laughs> I tried to make out that it was a real series, see how many people would uh, fall for it, but not, not many did, I don't think. Damn. Like nobody did. Or a show. But, uh, I think all, all my friends would know it's not a real series anyway. You know what? So. I wonder if that was ever mooted and, and Peter Cushing, just it, from his Sherlock Holmes experience, went, nope, no more TV. <laughs> Um, it would have been brilliant. It would have been, been fantastic. Brilliant. But um, um, yeah, um, the, the, the Cushing's age in the Masks of Death is interesting because it's kind of the it's at the start it's set in about 1915, 18s, something like that. The end of the war, I think. Yes. Oh no, just before the war, I think. And the, and but then the the main story is set in about 1904, um, so it's flashback. So it's weird because Cushing is like 10 years too old for the part and then 20 years too old for the part or something, but it still kind of works. I think these kind of things, they always imagine Sherlock Holmes to be older than he is. He should be in his late 40s or something, or early 50s by the mid-1900s. But they, they always kind of pitch him as older, but it, it kind of works in The Master of Death because it has that flashback structure. Yes. And, and I don't know how they did it, but Cushing does seem older in the sort of 1914 sequences than he does in the in the earlier ones. Um, and you know, if you kind of you, you then have to kind of imagine that Hammer's Hound of the Baskervilles was set in about 1885 or something like that, and then the kind of timeline works out. I just think about these things because I'm a nerd. Um, but the issue of Cushing's age brings us to the last. Well, let me just say, let me just say, oh, um, go on. they might all be old, but they are all brilliant. They are. Oh, yeah. actors. Anne Baxter is one of my favourite actors, and she, actresses, and she's just great. And Anton Differing and, and John Mills—they're all, they're all yeah. really good. So they, they just look old. There's kind of a bit of a sadness about it that they're, they're all—you know—that they haven't got long left, and this is yeah. one of their last productions. But I, I, I think it's—it's it's almost kind of—it it is Cushing's last piece that's kind of horror. I mean, it's it's. It's, it's a detective story, but it does have horror elements. And it's kind of, I'm glad that his last thing of that ilk was him playing the lead role, playing yes. Holmes and being, you know, being sent to get a knighthood at the end. Yeah, think, yeah. You know. um, Which he should have got, but didn't. Yes, indeed. Um, but, you know, OBE. Oh, well. Um, but the, So the issue of, of uh, Sherlock's age does bring us to the final thing we need to discuss, which is Sherlock Holmes' The Golden Years, <laughs> starring Christopher Lee as elderly Sherlock Holmes and Patrick McNee as elderly John Watson, made in the, the early 1990s by Harry Allen Towers' company. Uh, he's the, he, uh, the one who's done about 85 different versions of And Then There Were None. Or <laughs> right. Whatever it's called. Well, 
we, we, we might mention Harry Allen Towers at some other point on the podcast, but I think we should probably just explain who he is. British producer who was a, a, a real wheeler dealer, would do anything he could to get productions off the ground, but never didn't seem to have, ever have enough money to actually film in England. All his productions are kind of European co-productions or entirely European. Um, and I, I think that applies to this as well. I don't know if any of the location filming was in England. It does look quite nice. But most of the film... I mean... Uh, well, have you, have you seen these films? Have no, you? I haven't. I've, I, is Richard Toddy one of them? Uh, he's in Incidents at Victoria yeah, Falls. Then I, yeah, then I kind of know what they are, but no, I've never seen them. Well, the idea was to do a, a long kind of mini-series called Sherlock Holmes' The Golden Years, pitching Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson in their dotage and kind of imagining them meeting old historical figures who would have been alive in that time. A bit like the TV series The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, where you just take a fictional character set in a certain era and for some reason feel compelled to think, what would it be like if they met Theodore Roosevelt? Or something like that. Um, they, only made, they only made two episodes of this show. They're very long episodes. They're not like more than three hours long. In fact, I think they were both two-part miniseries. And then they were released on video as two TV movies, heavily edited down. And the one I've seen is the edited down version of, the, uh, I think, the second film, Incidents at Victoria Falls. The first one uh, is called Sherlock Holmes and the Leading Lady, and it's directed by Peter Sasdy. Oh, who, well, well. But um, the, the second one, Incident at Victoria Falls, is directed by Bill Corker, and a director I don't know about. Um, and the cut, because I've seen the cut-down version, it means that although um, Jenny Seagrove is in it and gets high billing, she well, she gets high billing, but she's only in one shot and she doesn't have a line because they cut her entire part out. She was supposed to play Lily, Lily Lantry, but it's also got things. It's got like Joss Ackland in it as the King of England. Claude Aikens. Claude Aikens plays, I think, Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah. As a, is Franklin D. Roosevelt was the younger one, wasn't he? I think so. So, yeah, so it's Theodore Roosevelt. Um, yes, he was, yeah. And I, I did kind of quite enjoy it. It's got a, a kind of all-star Agatha Christie kind of Peter Ustinov sort of vibe to it. Um, and it's daft. <laughs> um, and I like that. And uh, Christopher Lee and Patrick McNear having great fun as, as Holmes and Watson. They actually were at school together. But, uh, you know, I think we mentioned earlier in the show that uh, they died within a week of each other. You know, they were almost exactly the same age. Uh, and they'd been in school plays together, you know, pre-team. And, and here they are reunited, and I think they just have great fun. Like in The Massacre of Death, they're both far too old for Holmes and Watson at that time. Setting about 1910 again. It should be about 1925, given how old they are, but whatever. Um, but no, you know, they they do it really well. They have a zest to them. Um, it, it's, uh, I think a lot of it's filmed on location in South Africa um, and looks great. There's a fantastic sequence where a lot of it's set on the trains, but again, that kind of Agatha Christie vibe. Um, and Sherlock Holmes becomes interested in uh, talking to Theodore Roosevelt, played by Claude Aikens, the star of great, some great westerns and B movies. Some great westerns, yes, and Coltrack, the night, uh, the original film of The Night Stalker. Oh, he's in that. Yeah, I have seen he, he that. He plays the um, rather belligerent cop who's on Coltrack's case all the time. Oh, okay, I forgot. He was but in yeah, that. he is a split. I saw him in, I saw him in a western. Yeah, he's in Return of the Seven, the sequel to The Magnificent Seven with Yul Brynner and yeah. nobody else from the original <laughs> film. Um, 
And um, he's also in the fifth Planet of the Apes film. He's in Inherit the Wind as well. Oh, I don't know that one. And, and the K Newton, he, he plays, plays tough guys in, yeah. in things, and he's usually the bad guy. Anyway, he's got, he's, he does a very nice twinkling eyed performance as Theodore Roosevelt in this film. There's a great bit where Sherlock wants to speak to him, but he can't find him on the train. And, and, and the train porter says to him, Oh, uh, he's on the front of the train. <laughs> and he cuts to the next exterior shot, and the train's got along with Claude Aikens on the front of it, sitting on the prow of it. And, um, and, and Sherlock goes and joins him. So you have this whole dialogue scene, which is literally Claude Aikens and Christopher Lee, not stunt doubles, sitting on the front of a moving steam train in somewhere in Africa, just chatting and looking well cool in like immaculate suits. Uh, so it's got things like that in it. It's, not, it's probably not a great one for Sherlock Holmes fans, but it is quite enjoyable. And if you like, I mean, obviously we love Lee, I love Patrick McNee, he's an actor who like could Patrick be McNee absolutely well. terrible in any project that he didn't wasn't really interested in, think, which is most of what he did. I think he's great in the Avengers throughout it, he obviously loved that. But other things, are, you know, I've seen, he's dreadful in the episode of Murder, She Wrote, I've seen. Oh, well that's because he's doing a really bad Northern accent, though. For some yeah. reason they've told him to do, or he's chosen to do, a Northern accent, and he can't do a Northern accent, it's real really bad one yes he did uh, I, well I don't know what. Well, for whatever reason I saw that not so long ago and, uh, um, he's also he's, it's not the first time he played Dr Watson either he also played Dr Watson in an interesting TV movie called Sherlock Holmes in New York from 1976 starring Roger Moore yes and he's Patrick Manny is really terrible as Dr Watson in that he seems to be trying to do an impression of Nigel Bruce uh, but with a with a husky voice <laughs> and he's just awful um, even though I do quite enjoy the film, which has also got Charlotte Rampling as Irene Adler. And John Houston. John Houston as an excellent Moriarty, yeah. I think one of the best. Um, and even Roger Moore was quite good as Holmes. Well, I can't picture it. Because you know what the worst Town of the Baskervilles is, don't you? Or the worst one made in English speaking. Well, I imagine it, you're going to talk about the Peter Cook one. No, I, oh yeah, that's terrible, but that's, that's that kind of speak. No, I'm going to talk about the Stuart Ranger one. Oh, of course, the Shatner one. The really, really, really terrible TV movie where everybody's miscast. Stuart Granger is Sherlock Holmes, an actor called Bernard Fox, based on what's Bernard Fox, oh, which yeah. played sort of like. Well, it's sort of like stiff upper lips, English gents, but it's almost like he's sending them up all the time. He's in Colombo a couple of times. I think he's in Bewitched as a regular role in that. Um, I think he's like he's like a comedy actor, really. He's not. Sort of, uh, and William Shatner is the villain, and he's just. I've got to see it. I've seen You've it. You've got enough to see it. It's, just, they, it's a film where they do everything wrong. There's no atmosphere. Everybody's miscast. There's no tension. The hound looks rubbery. I mean, it really, it's worth watching to see how bad somebody can I've do watched something. a few minutes of it and it's enough to tell how bad it is. It's on YouTube, folks. Check it out. I think I will sometime when I'm, you know, really wanting to kill myself, I'll, I'll, I'll watch it. <laughs> it's, you can't, but there's quite, there's, I've got an English actress called Jane Merrow in it. It was in a few, I think she did Hands of the Ripper and one or two horror films or, or British thrillers at the time. She, she went to America and must have done and made this film and then right. didn't do anything again, I don't think she was too embarrassed. Damn. Um, but yeah, well I'm sure that um, Christopher Lee's Golden Years is better than that. Yes, well they can't um, be any worse, so it has to And be. I'd like to see the other film in the series. Um, we've got to wrap this discussion up, Howard, because oh, we no. need to go to rehearsal. Now. Yes, we do. But yes. we, we've, we've talked about everything from, we wanted. Tea. We, yes, me too. We've talked about everything we wanted to. Um, and it's got kind of noisier in this cafe now, so I, I hope that the listener can still hear us.
been listening to. And now the podcast starts. Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited. Presented by Howard Whittock and T.D. Velasquez. Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web, www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages at andnowpod or at Lee Cushing Pod. Follow us on Twitter at andnowpodcast or at Lee Cushing Podcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash andnowpodcast. And now the podcast stops.